Hey, Soma Church. Good morning. So good to be back with you today. And uh, I heard that there's a little football game today. Um, now, it was mentioned I'm from Southern California. And so as I was making my uh, clothing selection today, I uh, intentionally selected neutral colors <laughs> because I did not want to cause any of you to stumble. <laughs> uh, but I will say this, this week, I was wearing something that had a blue color on it, and it um, was a different sport, and it was it had an emblem, let's just say, for a group that's friends with, it rhymes with Roger, and I get out of my car, I'm in the parking lot to go into a store, and these three young people, as they walk and they get into their car, they see my shirt, and the driver of this car from his windshield yelled something at me, and I, I walked by his car, and it was nighttime, and, and I looked in, I said, what did you say like that to him? And he rolls his window, window down, and with a smile on his face, he says, I said expletive to Roger. But he said the team, right? <laughs> he, was, he was cussing out Roger and all of his friends. And it's like, what do I do in that moment? I know that some of Roger's friends can be obnoxious, but I just looked in and said, I just, nothing, just walked away. I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time for this, for the guys who try to be giants, and they're just not, you know, so I just walked away. So you'd be proud of me. I, I held my tongue. That was good, right? But uh, it's good to be with you, and, and um, you know, church is the place where we come to encourage, be encouraged, and to, to refill ourselves. As I was worshiping this morning and thinking about things that Jim was sharing and uh, just just being here in the sanctuary with you, like, I need these moments. Uh, over the holidays, we drove down um, south to see family, and it was about, you know, a 12-hour trip because to drive, it takes a little bit longer. A friend loaned us an electrical vehicle, and that was the first time I've ever driven one down the five, and you have to map out your your, your stations to recharge, and, and you really, you feel like you're at the mercy of the car. You're on, you're on this journey, and you have to stop at these stations, and you're there for an hour sometimes. And at these stations, though, they've built some of them to be filling stations where you come and, and, you know, I was very tired when we were driving, even though I could put this car on autopilot, I didn't want to do that. And we're in these filling stations, and for an hour, you take a rest, you sleep, you know, you get, there was one of these stations had a wonderful coffee bar and just um, things to to watch on TV. They had a, a lounge that you could sit in. It was like, you know, well, church is not supposed to be the place where you come and necessarily fall asleep. And, and you know, it's not just about the refreshments. And, but this is the place we come to as a filling station. It's, it's the station for us today as we gather together. I need to see your faces. We need to hear the word of God. We need to worship together as we leave this place through our week with our tanks full to, to go back and, and, and face what, what's troublesome out there and to do so without compromising our faith and having some perseverance and some steadfastness with this great faith that we have and all that it is. So I'm excited to be back with you today for that purpose as we return to the book of Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and read there. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is for final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, 
he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll close there. The book of Hebrews. What a wonderful book. It is a challenging book, especially for a modern non-Jewish reader and all the work that we have to do to sort of understand the context. You have just finished reading. Paul has told me through the kind of warnings sections of the book of Hebrews, and that might also offer a layer of challenge to us as we hear some of those warnings. But today, I'm so grateful for this reading because it gets really to the heart the purpose of the book of Hebrews, which simply is to fill us up with encouragement, to encourage us in times of trouble. As we consider the original audience, and I've mentioned this before with you, this Hebrew, early Christian Hebrew audience would have been hard-pressed on multiple sides. They would have been challenged by their own Jewish community who rejected Jesus, and they would not have agreed with their faith in following Jesus as the Messiah, and they probably would have faced some ostracizing as a result. And they also were in the Roman Empire when there was political and social pressures for the Christian to be loyal to the empire, and some of those pressures stand in contrast to the Christian belief. And so many of these hard-pressed early Jewish Christians, they needed encouragement. They're in a troublesome world, and when it gets hard out there, sometimes we just want to throw in the towel and, and just go with what everybody else wants so that you can spare your own life and, and have some, some, some stability. So this encouragement today is right where we need it. It's, it's timely for us because, you know, troubles are going to be there. And they, they come and they go. And we thank God for the times of peace, but we also recognize that we need encouragement through the times of trouble. And so Hebrews is this letter intended to support these Jewish Christians facing hardships. And today, with a little bit of labor to contextualize this passage, I believe that we'll also have some encouragement to walk away as we leave and be refilled again to face the world as we leave from here. This passage is about the promise of God. This passage is related to God's purposes as it's expressed in his promise. As I consider God's promise, I think of it in terms of a giant, the giant umbrella of God's promise to summarize. Generally speaking, God's promise is to bring salvation. God wants to save humanity. He wants to save that part of his creation which is made in his own image. God, God originally created us for fellowship with him. He originally created us to enjoy him. And when sin entered the world, there's this, this disruption to that original intent. And so God's promise is to save humanity. That's the giant umbrella of that. And, and that's his will. And we see God working to that end to save. And then as I think about that more specifically underneath that umbrella, you and I, we have certain promises that we see in history, but also individually for us, there's purposes and callings and ways that God is working in your life individually to, to follow him and to, to be fulfilled based on how he made you uniquely. God promised to save me, and God did save me. God promised to call me his son, and he does. He calls me his son. And now today I'm living into that promise and the privileges of that promise as, as a saved 
son of God, I'm living in to my privileges of that as, as a husband, as a father. These are my kids up here. My wife, Jolene. Yes, again, named after the Dolly Parton song, Christian, Jonathan, and Evangeline, my, my brood up here. And I'm living into my privileges of God's promises through my relationship with them. And as a pastor and the things that God has also called me to do as I live in this world, I'm living into that. And at this time, in this moment, 2022, his promises are being realized in my life. And so the same is true for all of us, that God's realizing his promises in your life. And as I read this passage and think about the heart of God on this, the first point that I want us to hear is that God deeply desires to convince us of his promise. God deeply desires to convince us of his promise. Throughout the Bible, we vividly see that God makes promises to his chosen people. That's his behavior. That's his pattern. He makes promises. And in the biblical sense, a promise is just simply a word from God. It's simply an expression of God where he tells humanity how they can expect him to act. That's what a promise is. It's his, his spoken word. This is how you can expect for me to act. Anticipate this. From a young age, we all hear promises all the time, don't we? From a young age. We're accustomed to hearing promises. You know, they are a way that we communicate our desires, our intentions. That's what a promise is. I promise to do that. You know, Evangeline likes to pinky promise that we can have daddy-daughter dates. Daddy, I guess there's some power in this pinky because this is all she needs. This is a little pinky promise. Or, uh, you know, we make promises to pay somebody back when we borrow money. It's like we speak our word of our intent. Contracts are a type of promise. It's a spoken word that says we intend to do whatever's in the contract. We hear promises all the time. Politicians make promises. That's how they get elected. <laughs> we'll stop there. You know, we see promises all over. When I officiate a wedding, the bride and the groom, they share vows of a promise. It's a beautiful thing. And they, they together declare their intent to live in covenant with one another for the rest of their lives till death do us part. The promise communicates desire and will. And so that God makes a promise, even to begin with, that he expresses his desire and intent and will, that is an amazing thing because he doesn't have to. He doesn't need to intrinsically make these promises, but he expresses his word and says, this is how you can expect for me to act. I promise to do this. We don't deserve that because of our sinfulness, because of the brokenness that's in the world. We don't deserve that. So, but, but God still does it. He still makes his promise. And so the author of Hebrews is putting at the forefront of, of the audience the fact that God has made promises, which in of itself is such a good thing. And then the author goes on further to say, not only has he made the promise, but he also does this double witness element. He, he pledges an oath. He swears an oath. He doesn't have to do that either. He swears an oath to, as verse 17 says, because he deeply desires to show his people more convincingly the character of his purpose. He wants us to be deeply convinced of his promise. So not only did he, he gave us the promise, now he's also giving the oath. He's swearing by himself this oath 
that he's going to do this promise. He wants you to be convinced. We live in a world of broken promises, don't we? Yes. And humans, it's kind of part of the, the, the predicament, the tragedy. We don't always keep our word. And to be, that's why there's such things as oaths from our vantage to begin with, because we have to up the ante. You know, the, the, the oath is where we call on the name of a superior power. And that power is supposed to validate and give you, give you confidence in what we're saying. We're going we're gonna to follow through with our word. You know, when I was a kid, we used to hear kids in the classroom and on the playground say things like, no, I swear I'm going to do that. I swear on my life, right? You have to up the ante to get people to believe your word. And if you really wanted to up the ante, you would even say, I swear on my mom's life. Have you ever, remember hearing that? I don't know if they, I don't hear kids say that as much. And if you even wanted to go farther than that, you would say, I swear on your mom's life. Because then that gives you permission to beat me up or whatever, or your mom to come get me if I don't follow through with my word, right? We, we, so we pledge these oaths to up the ante because the principle is if you don't keep your oath, when you pledge it in the name of a higher power, you will be punished as a result somehow. And that's why the courts are built this way. When we, we bring out the Bible and you pledge an oath to speak the truth because of the penalty of perjury, that fear of punishment makes you tell the truth. And so that the promise of God and God's oath, these are two unchangeable things in verse 17. And they're, they're to act as a, a guarantee so that we can have confidence in him. There's no higher power than God. So he's pledging this oath just to give this utmost of confidence. God does not lie. When God says something, that is going to happen. When God declares his intent, it will come to pass. By this twofold now, even this oath on top of it, be assured what God promised will occur. He doesn't break them. Why do we need that kind of convincing? Why do you need that kind of convincing from God? You know, I, I think about that. I, I think in part, it's because when there's a promise that comes from God, the fulfillment of that promise may not happen in the timeline that we want it to happen. And the pattern that we see as well when, when God makes promises in the Bible is that there is a delay in time from when God speaks his word and says, this is what you can expect from me to when that actually occurs. There's always a delay. Now, is that a delay from God's point of view? That's an interesting question to answer. But certainly from our point of view, it's like, okay, when's that going to take place? Can we do that now? To hear delay, that idea that there's a delay in the promise is not something that sits well with us, I know. Because, I mean, you know, even today we, we live in a society where it's so instant and our, our uh, uh, you know, we, we wait less for certain things today. But even if I go back 2,000 years and we hear this passage about God pledging even an oath, and so that, that is to tell this, that this same audience would have struggled with seeing the fulfillment of God's promises even then. And, and some of the fulfillment of their promises, when's the kingdom going to re be restored so that we can be protected from this world? When are you going to come back? When are you going to completely fulfill the kingdom? When's Jesus going to return? Those kinds of things. There's a waiting period. There's a delay. 
And so we, we, we need this extra confidence because, you know, we don't know the timeline, but it's going to happen. And so the author here in Hebrews loves, loves the uh, example of Abraham. And Abraham here gives us a great example of how to respond when God gives the promise. Abraham was given this promise by God, and how he responds becomes a precedent for how everyone is supposed to respond. We're encouraged to respond the same way. You know, the promise that was given to Abraham that God verbalized to him was, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with descendants, and I'm going to bless you with land with those descendants to live. That was the promise. It's such a good promise that we call it a covenant. And this promise, how did Abraham receive it? That's the example that we should follow. Abraham responded to God and he believed him. And, it, and he had a faith in God and he responded and lived out his life based in that faith of God's promise. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it, it tells us that those who have faith like that, like Abraham who believe God and his promise, they become also sons of Abraham. And so his descendants are actually being continually built even today through belief. So he, what, what did it say that, that here in Hebrews that Abraham literally did when he responded to God's promise? Did you catch it? Verse 15, what does it say that Abraham did? He waited patiently. So this is the second idea here. So much church, wait patiently for God's promises to happen. Now I know what you're thinking. Come on, pastor. I thought that you said this was supposed to be encouraging. (laughs) Who wants to wait around for what God said is going to happen? Happen. Meanwhile, we live in this world and this trouble. Why, Why do we have to wait anymore? He he could just do it. He's sovereign. He could just fix this all right now. Why do we got to walk through this stuff? <laughs> wait patiently. What are you talking about? Who wants to wait? It's always been a difficult thing to wait. When God promised uh, Abraham descendants and land, um, you know, he didn't see the immediate fulfillment of that promise. And when he delivered that word saying, you're going to have descendants and land, one of the next things that God calls Abraham to do is to leave his home. So if you go back and you read Genesis, he tells Abraham, you know, I'm calling you out of that, that area. Uh, he was from the land of Ur of the Chaldees, of Haran. And Abraham believed him, his promise. So he, he was obedient. And this would not have been a small undertaking at this stage in Abraham's life, an aged man who had a lot of possessions and wealth, and he had servants. And so he's making this trek to kind of a new unknown place. And, but he trusted God, and, he, and, he, and he, he went. And we're even told that, you know, even after God would reiterate this promise, if you read Genesis 15, is that Abraham fell into a deep darkness at the end of the day and uh, a, this, like this uh, dreadful sleep where he was shown the future, and, and he was shown that it was revealed to him that there would be slavery in a foreign land. And so connected after this promise was also some darkness, but yet he still left his home turf. After all that life he had lived there in that land, in the area of Mesopotamia, he left. And along the way, we read as he goes into this new territory, there were dangerous things. People who lived there, battles to face, and even a famine would hit him. 
but yet he still believed and he still traveled. He, he still didn't, he didn't see the complete fulfillment, but along the way at this point, God was taking care of him. And, and that's the appropriate way to respond. He believed God's word at face value as crazy as it might have been. It was a God-sized promise. He was an old man. What do you mean? Descendants. We're get, how, how's that going to work? An old guy like me and my wife having descendants. How's that going to But he believed God. That's an example to follow when God comes to us with his promise. But he had to wait. God took care of him. The promise would be fulfilled, but he had to wait. And so I think that when we do this in the same way, when we, when we wait on God, but yet we believe God, we give God the space to show up and reveal how he's going to take care of us and how he's going to, how all the things he has for us are going to come to pass. And our faith grows. In his old age, God continued to deliver on his promise. Abraham was blessed with a son. Eventually, his name was Isaac. And this happened, get this, 25 years after he originally heard God speak this word of the promise. 25 years later is when Isaac was born, his legitimate descendant. 25 years, gosh, think about that. I was thinking, I looked this up. 25 years ago, 1997. Think about that. Where were you in 1997? Some of your kind, you weren't even in existence. As my mom used to say, you weren't even a twinkle in my eye, right? 1997, Bill Clinton was still our president. I looked up some of the events. Steve Jobs had just come back to Apple. Think about if he had not come back to Apple, what kind of company? You guys probably would not have iPhones. I don't have an iPhone. I have, a, I have an Android. Don't hit me. That's okay. Um, Princess Diana passed away in 1997. You just think about all the things that happened 25 years ago. That was like a lifetime ago. I was in high school. It's like, that's a blur. We had dial-up. We didn't have internet. I didn't have internet. You had internet? AOL? AOL, wasn't it? You guys? I, I grew up in the sticks. We didn't have internet. I grew up in a little rural town. Um, we barely had phones. So, yeah. Oh, the rotary phone. I, well, we were a little bit beyond the rotary phone, the little turn. <laughs> that was more like 80s, I think, was when that kind of got put out. My kids have never seen one of those. But a lot of life happened in 25 years before, before Abraham saw the fulfillment of God's promise. And then if you fast forward even more, it was 60 years when he would see his grandchildren. I mean, that's a long time to wait, but he waited patiently and he obtained it. And you know what? Even still, there were things that Abraham did not see that were connected to the fullness of God's promise. And he died before he ever saw it. Abraham never saw the land being filled with his descendants, that the kingdom of Israel was being established. He never got to see that. Abraham never saw God's Messiah come and do the work that he did. And the descendants, like Galatians say, says in chapter 3, that would become his children spiritually, he would never see that day. He wouldn't see this day of of, of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who are now called sons of Abraham, we're part of those descendants now. But what's interesting is Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 56, that Abraham saw his day, saw Jesus' day, and was glad. He was glad. That's the kind of faith he had 
in God's promise. So part of his waiting patiently, it doesn't mean he was just sitting around idle. That's not what patience is. He, he came out of Haran. He, there was still movement in light of being patient, but there was a gladness in his heart for what he knew God was going to do because he trusted that when God says something, he won't break that promise. And what he had to help him wait patiently was God's providence. I love the teaching in the Bible of God's providence. It's one of my favorite elements. It's what spurs me forward. Providence is this doctrine of teaching that says we look to the past to see the precedent of pattern of how God has behaved and how he's already responded and made fulfillments to take care of his people. And we use that to help us face tomorrow because we can expect that he will continue to take care of us because that's his will. He wants us to be with him, healthy, safe, saved. He will continue to take care of us. So I love looking back to see what are the tokens of reminders that, that, that in the scripture that, are, that tell us of God's providence. And what are the things in my own life that are reminders to speak of God's providence? It helps me move on. And then God also helped me retain that gladness. We talked about that uh, in the psalm in worship when we opened up this morning was that our hearts are glad because God's will is going to be done. He has promised to save us. That promise has been fulfilled. Sin and death have been destroyed by Jesus. That's one of those tokens of providence. The residue of sin, though it lives in this world, we experience trouble. Jesus has gone to battle with that and has overcome. Today, we maybe even experience some of those troubles in a heightened sense. You know, I was thinking back 1997. Then fast forward a little bit to 2001, and I was thinking, gosh, when I was in college, 9-11, there was troublesome times. You know, and Y2K, remember that? The whole world was going to end. Everybody was afraid and frightened. But you know, as we fast forward even to today, we see, I mean, I couldn't never have imagined the kinds of troubles that I would be encountering in ministry at this stage in life, past college. You know, today as we are dealing with things like cyber threats still and, you know, uh, just political and and social justice upheaval in our country and in our world, uh, just just hearing the news and, you know, just the things that are happening, um, the pandemic and the way that we're responding. You know, one of the things that's troublesome to me is the apathy that's entering into the church and the migrations away from the church that's happening. One one element I can't help but remember is that in the aftermath of 9-11, it happened on a Tuesday morning. It was that that Sunday when I went to church. You know, there were thousands of people at church. It was standing room only. And yet now as we're going through some troublesome times, it's like there's an apathy that's settled in. That adds trouble. That troubles me. And just continuing to think forward in this time, it's, it's just the world is filled with hardship and it, and it comes and it goes, but we have it, you know, and we have it in, individually and personally. Just this past month, you know, uh, and, and this past season, I've had family members pass away unexpectedly, young, should, shouldn't have passed away. There's troubles. So especially in these moments, this is when we need to lean on that promise of God and his providence. He's already accomplished the salvation part. And these other parts, he will resolve as well. And the author of Hebrews says it so beautifully. And if there's a word to take home today, it's this. 
Hope in Jesus is like a steadfast anchor of the soul. There's your encouraging word that you would take that home today. Hope in Jesus is like a steadfast anchor of the soul. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. This is the only time the image of the anchor is used in the New Testament as a metaphor for the spiritual life. And the image is this. It's like we're we're a ship traveling out on the water. We've set our coordinates. We've set our course. Our sails are up, and we're going. And maybe if we want to stretch the metaphor, we could say, you know, our destination is the city of God. That's where our lives are taking us. We're going to be with him. But along the way, and this, this imagery, this metaphor was big for the ancients because, you know, they, they living around the Mediterranean Sea, they recognized how dangerous the sea was and, and how important an anchor was. So along the way, as you're on the sea, there could be storms and tempests and currents and things that would cause you to get knocked off course, things that would maybe even capsize you. And so when a storm would come, one of the things they'd do is put the anchor down. Put your anchor down to keep you stable on that course. And guess what? You put the anchor down and the storms are coming. The the turbulence is there. You got to wait it out. Because if you try to fight the storm, if you try to navigate through that, you're going to bump off to a different course. And maybe it'll take longer to get to where you're going, but maybe you might just completely get lost. And so this hope in Jesus is like an anchor. When you, Jesus is the anchor that holds it. When you set it down, set him down, that you don't get knocked off course. You don't drift. Because as we experience trouble, that's the temptation is that you drift to start to take things into your own hands so that you might come up with your own plans and forget the promise of God. Forget his purposes for your life. Forget what he's asked you to do, what he's said he's going to do for you. Forget that. Do what you got to do to survive the storm, right? That's a trap. So the anchor holds. And this, this metaphor is, is, is wonderful, and we need reminding of that. And when I was with you last time, I don't know if you remember, that one of the things that I shared with you is in this season of life with what's going on and even personally what's going on is I just want to come back to who Jesus is. I want to see the face of Jesus. You remember me telling you, like, come back to who Jesus is. Remember me telling you that? Now, I'm not a red-letter Christian. Those are the Christians that, you know, when they read their Bible, it's like, it's only the inspired words are the red ones, the ones that Jesus said. I think the, the whole of the canon is the word of God. But for this season, I find myself going back to, what did Jesus say? You know, he's not just an idea. Jesus is not just something that we talk about. He's a person, He's a friend. He is our savior. He's, he was a man. He's a man like us. He's human. He's a person. What did he say? How did he live? He, I want to see his face. I want to walk with him. And so in this season, I'm going back to things like the, the parables, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to recover who he is in my life and remember that. I need to be reminded of who he is. He is real. How are you doing with that? Going back to seeing the face of Jesus in your life, the anchor holds That's the anchor. It's to keep us on the course. Um, As I also think about this last metaphor to close with, it says here, and you'll talk more about this probably with Paul when you get into chapter 7, but Melchizedek is mentioned, that Jesus is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek, many of you who know your Bibles, you know that Melchizedek was a king. He's a king of Salem. But he also was a priest, 
and those two offices aren't supposed to go together. It's really unique that they go together. Because you think about royalty, you think about perfection and holiness, you think about authority and power and sovereignty. When I think of a royal, I think they're always put together. They've got their royal garbs. They look perfect. They're radiant. They're glowing. When I think of a priest, you know, I think of a little bit. It's a little, it's messy work. It's an it's a, it's a office of service. You know, priest's job was dirty as they would, especially in the Old Testament times, they would slaughter the animals and use their blood. And on the Day of Atonement, use that to atone for the sin of the nation. Like that, working with sin and in that world of service for the priest, that's dirty work. How do those two offices go together? And yet Jesus is the one who, who entered into the mess entirely, even offering his own blood, really was marred by the office of the priesthood. So he's both this priestly king, and here's what I love here, that he's the only one that could do this. It says that he enters behind the curtain on our behalf, and this is another providential token to remind us of what God has done. And I have to tell you just briefly on this, just what this entails. Like if you remember, if you remember the image of the temple in Jerusalem and, and all that complex and what was set up there, and, and what, what it teaches Israel about who God is. You know, you had the Holy of Holies there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that was the inner room, the inner sanctum that's being talked about. It was separated from the rest of the world by a very thick embroidered curtain. And the very literal presence of God was in that room that nobody could just enter that room on their own terms. It was only one high priest, one day of the year that could enter the presence of God. And there were even restrictions and rules for how that priest would enter that room. That partition and the other partitions that existed around the presence of God was not to, to you know, keep you out per se. I mean, that was part of its reason of existence, but it was to protect you. Those partitions were to protect you from being killed by the presence of God's holiness. And so even the priest, as he would enter in, like you know this history, right? He would have bells on his, on his robe, and those bells would ring when he would enter in. When you're moving with that robe, the bells would jingle so that the priest on the outside of that curtain, they could hear him moving inside. And if those bells stopped ringing, they would know, uh-oh, something's wrong. He entered into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and those bells aren't ringing anymore had a rope tied around his ankles. If they don't hear the bells, they're not going in after him. They don't want to die. They'd pull him out by the rope. That's how intently they thought about the presence of God and how dangerous it could be. And as you moved out from the Holy of Holies, there were these other partitions, these courts that surrounded the presence of God. And the, the outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles. And that was where the whole world could come. Everybody could come, but that was as close as you could get to the presence of God. You couldn't get beyond that. Jew, Gentile, male, female, you could all come to the court of the Gentiles. And there was a big gate that separated to the next court, the court of the women, where Jewish women and men could go and they could get that, the women could get that close to the presence of God. And then the next wall and partition led to the court of the men and only the men could get that close. And then the priests, right? All these partitions to protect us from the presence of God and his holiness, it says that Jesus went behind that curtain as the king, the priest. Only he could do that. He's that higher authority. And we know when we read the gospels, that was one of the first things that happened when it says, it is finished. When Jesus says that from the cross, one well, of the first events is that curtain is torn. And the, the, the idea there is, the reality is, 
that God's presence is now not dangerous in that same way. You know, I mean, it could lead you to places where it's like, what am I doing in this place? What am I doing in Sonoma County? <laughs> it can lead you to places you wouldn't imagine, but you, you can go now and be with God. There's nothing separating you from God. We don't, now, we don't have any tokens literally to, to remind us of that reality, but I'll tell you this, and when I found this out, my mouth dropped. The only artifact that we have, one of the only artifacts we have from the Temple Mount, when we went to Jerusalem, there's, when we went there, there's a lot of artifacts that are still there that show from that era. But one of the only artifacts from the actual Temple Mount, we don't have the elements from inside the Holy of Holies. We don't have the curtain. We don't have any of that stuff. There's one little thing we have. It's not a little thing. One of those gates, the Romans installed on one of those gates in the outer courts this inscription. And it's, it's a keep out sign. It's called the Roman warning inscription. You can look it up. It basically is a message that says, if you you can't pass this gate, keep out. If you pass this gate, enter at your own risk. And if you read Acts, you know that Paul was accused of doing that very thing, that he brought Gentiles past that gate, and he was arrested for it. And inevitably, Paul, after he was tried, he died for that. You know, he he was, uh, tradition teaches us, Uh, martyred in Rome as capital punishment for that act of passing the gate. The only thing we have left to remind us of that temple complex and those those gates, those courts, is that inscription that says, keep out. It's as if God is saying, I tore that out. Don't forget my providence. You have access to me. There's nothing separating us. There's nothing separating us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. There's nothing. I'm not separating it. So the anchor holds. And we need those tokens to remind us of the promise of God. And I need those now. You know, I'm in a transitionary point as well. We're kind of in between ministries. And we don't know where God's going to totally steer us. But we know, I know that um, I, I'm saved. I'm a son of God. And underneath the, that umbrella of, of God's promise are his purposes for me which includes being a pastor in the ministry. And so I'm following God with that, even though I'm reading about how pastors are leaving the church right now in droves and they're you know, finding it hard to pastor in this time and this season. But I'm convinced of this call and I don't know where he's gonna place us, but we're letting him steer us. And, and we're watching him provide for us. And my heart is glad, even in the midst of the trouble. When we did this before, when we were coming from Southern California to here, we didn't know where we were going to end up next in ministry. And I also didn't have a, a job lined up, which was kind of reckless. I'm so sorry that I put you through that. Well, but I have a job. She said we're in round two, but I have a job. So I, Counseling after, honey. Come on. So this, just like an Abraham left Haran, there was these opportunities for him to see God provide and begin to fulfill his purpose. And I've seen that as well, just operating my faith. I, the destination isn't there for us yet. There's a waiting period. Maybe you experience that too in the ways that God's purpose your life. There's a waiting period. But I remember those tokens of God's providence, like the morning when we were like, how are we going to pay the electric bill? And when we opened the door in the morning, there's, there's somebody had come by our house and put, they didn't know how much we needed, whoever this, we don't even know who gave it to us, but they put in the, an envelope, some money, and it was exactly the amount we needed to pay our bill. Stuff like that we wouldn't otherwise see if we didn't 
like Abraham, have the God's going to lead us. He already promised these things that have happened. We're waiting. We're just, we're, we're glad when we're going to walk out in faith together. And that's why I need encouragement for you. That's from you, just to see you here, devoting yourself to God. And, you know, together we mutually build one another up. You have things that God is doing in your life as well. You have things that you hope from God and expectations from him. And, and just know that God doesn't break promises. And, you know, we are all waiting for, you know, all things to be made new. We're all waiting for that. And so in the meantime, in this period, in our gladness, let the anchor hold. The hope of Jesus is the anchor for the soul. May you just remember that today and see his face, I pray. Let me end in a word of prayer. And so, Father, we do indeed come before you with gratitude for the work, the secured work that you have already done, not to be taken for granted. Our salvation is great in Christ, he, he, that he came for us and that he did the work. He, he followed through with it all till it is finished. And even to today, him seated at the right hand of God in a place of authority and power. Lord, we, we yearn for your return. We, we, we yearn for all things being made new, especially when we groan with the troubles of the world and the things that we see around us. But God, you continue to be sovereign in our hearts and in our lives. And while we wait, God, we know that uh, our faith is growing stronger and that you are being glorified and that there's a bigger picture than just today. There's a huge, massive, eternal picture that we don't see. We, it's impossible, but you do. We, we trust you today in this picture that you're building. And we know that our course and destination is the city of God. So thank you for Jesus. And thank you for so much church. And I just pray that you protect your, your, your beloved church and that you continue to build it up to maturity and love and truth and grace, to be a light to the world and the community that others may also see this picture we speak of. We thank you for your great promise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you again for having me today.